When I was younger, I used to listen to a lot of pain is temporary motivational speeches. It may last for a minute or an hour or a day or even a year, but eventually it will subside. I don't know what it was about these things. This kid's gonna be somebody better than anybody ever knew. Words and language. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. You may contribute a verse. They make you face the frustration, face the problem head on. You let people stick a finger in your face and tell you you're no good. And then they give you an answer for it. Don't ever let somebody tell you you can't do something. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. Quit. Don't quit. Noodles. Don't noodles. Today is a gift. That is why it is called a present. The makings of greatness in you, but you gotta take the helm and charge your own course. I don't know what that dream is that you have. I don't care how disappointing it might have been as you've been working toward that dream. That that dream that you're holding in your mind, that it's possible. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. Because it makes you take a good, long, hard look at the problems you have. And then it gives me the solution. Are you ready to explore? Because my name is Austin, and this is Bible Unbound. everyone thanks so much for exploring with us today hey quick disclaimer i don't know if you'll be able to hear this but there are people shooting off fireworks already my dog is pacing in the background there's some construction going on outside this is the only time i have to record this so if all of that comes through you just have to give me grace but we are walking hand in hand through the biblical epic and by the way this is kind of a huge milestone for us as we enter into the book of hosea because when we enter into this airspace here, we are entering into the minor prophets, which means that we have gone through the Pentateuch, the historical books, the wisdom literature, and the major prophets, and all we have left in the Old Testament are these 12 minor prophets. However, we will not be going through each book individually, or we would never make it to the end of the Bible this year. No, rather, instead, we will be combining some of these books, some of these minor prophets, and we will be stopping at only a couple individually. So, the minor prophets should take us only about six episodes to get through all 12 of them. But here's the thing. It's not like the Minor Prophets all have something different and new to say. In fact, when the Minor Prophets were originally compiled, they were just put into one scroll and called, quote, the Twelve, or the Twelve Prophets. They're all generally concerned with God's faithfulness in the midst of Israel's unfaithfulness. But we will be starting our time in the Minor Prophets with just Hosea. Now, Hosea is, like, super 
super old. In fact, I'm fairly certain, and this is something I realized while we were going through the major prophets as well, is that the prophets are in the order they're in because they go chronologically. <laughs> Imagine that. If this isn't true, let me know. But for the major prophets, Isaiah lived before Jeremiah, and Jeremiah before Ezekiel, and Ezekiel before Daniel. So when we get to the minor prophets, I think they're composed the same way. They're chronological. And I think Hosea is just the first prophet that lived before all the other minor prophets, and he lived a long time ago. So he's writing even before Isaiah comes on the scene to Ephraim, and that's the northern kingdom. Remember, Isaiah was to the southern kingdom, and Hosea is to the northern kingdom, Ephraim. And when we open Hosea, we're transported all the way to the beginning of the Israelite monarchy. And this all makes reading Hosea in my mind, anyway, way cooler. He's just like so freaking blunt about Israel's infidelity at the time when the nation is totally 100% prospering. It's the beginning of the monarchy. <laughs> but Hosea sees Israel's unfaithfulness through the lens of the covenantal curses in Deuteronomy 28. He sees that the Israelites have erected the Baals in the middle of the temples. He sees that there's cult prostitution that has run rampant in the nation. He sees that the Israelites have relied on Baal for economic and financial blessings. And they've relied on other nations for security. And, and they should be relying on, on Yahweh for both of those things. They've completely forfeited their holiness to the one true God. And Hosea sees this as a disaster waiting to happen. So the book starts off with an extended metaphor, or maybe a, a parable is probably a, a better way to look at it. It's the story of Hosea, Hosea's life, really. Hosea is commanded by God to marry a woman named Gomer. Now, it's unclear as to whether Gomer became a prostitute before or after she was married to Hosea, but what we do know is that Hosea and Gomer, they have three kids, Gomer commits adultery by being involved in prostitution, and Hosea is called to bring her back home. Not only that, but called to buy her back for himself using his own money so that she does not have to be subject to the unjust oppression of prostitution. This is the story of Israel. This is the story of the people of God. God has redeemed the people out of slavery, and the people fell right back into it. And now, God, through his own loving compassion, is going to redeem them back. Though he has every right to destroy them, he will redeem them back with his own resources. It's an incredibly powerful story that actually reflects and introduces the thematic elements throughout the rest of the book of Hosea. That was chapters just 1 through 3. The rest of the book, chapters 4 through 14, those are more like the prophetic literature we have been reading. And the rest of the book reminds the reader of the parable at the beginning by following the exact same structure over and over again. A reminder of the covenant that was made, a reminder of Israel's unfaithfulness to that covenant, and a reminder that God will redeem them. Chapters 4 through 6 are judgment on Israel for their rebellion, and it starts with the priests claiming that they are the reason the people are being led astray. 
their gluttony in taking too much of the sacrifices has led to the people taking too much of everything from everyone. It has led to shady business deals, idolatry, and a lust for abundance. It says, quote, My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staves give them oracles, for a spirit of whoredom has led them astray. But then, chapter 6 and into 7 introduce a hope that even though they have abandoned their trust in God, God will redeem them. And then the cycle starts all over again. Chapters 7 through 11 are judgment on Israel's injustices. They engage in bloody conflicts with other nations on the outside and with other parts of Israel on the inside. But again, chapter 11 then reveals that God will redeem the people. And we'll actually take an in-depth look at chapter 11 here in just a moment, but we need this bigger overview here to get some rock-solid context. So, Israel is run by unjust, oppressive leaders, unjust, oppressive priests. They exploit the lowly, kill the powerful, all while worshipping their walking staves. (laughs) I, I love that verse. And finally, chapters 12 through 14 reveal the same cycle. Judgment on Israel for breaking the covenant and the relentless pursuit of God despite their covenant unfaithfulness, just like Hosea to Gomer. And it introduces the hope of restoration once the nation is cast off. As Lamentation says, quote, I will not cast off forever. The Bible has a special word for God's jealousy. It's chana, and it means like this fiery passion. It holds no animosity or toxicity that the English word jealousy does. In fact, it often refers to a sense of safety, as though when a being is chana, they are willing to fight for what they love. You need someone in your life who is this way for you. Because in the ancient world, if you didn't have this, then you were eaten by a mountain lion and your buddies would just laugh at you as you got torn to shreds. This type of jealousy is the kind that stands in front of the mountain lion, ready to fight it for you. It is a passionate pursuit of someone or something. And in the Bible, Chana is so unlike human jealousy, so pure, that it's only ever used in connection to God. Human jealousy has an extra consonant, chiana. It is pretty similar, I'll give you that, but God's jealousy is nonetheless different. It's still a different word. And the book of Hosea makes it clear that the Messiah will be jealous, will be chana for the people of God. That though they break their covenant with God over and over and over again, he will nonetheless stand in front of the jaws of the mountain lion and fight it for you. He will redeem the people of God back to himself. Because it is within his nature to have this this passionate protection for that which he loves. The unwillingness to let injustice go unnoticed to let death have the last laugh. This jealousy to see the people of God brought back to God is no better exemplified than in Hosea chapter 11. 
told you we were going to look at this. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 of chapter 11, and then we're going to go pick it apart with our good friend, Wesley Scott. Let's dive in. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the balls and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them by their arms, but they didn't know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Admah? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord, and he will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. As always, when we do exegesis, we're joined by Wesley Scott, who's joining us via video chat because you're down in Antarctica taming penguins. Is that correct? Well, that's a little bit reductionistic, but, but essentially, yeah, we're hoping that one day penguins will be domesticated. But we're not here to talk about domestic penguins. We're here to talk about Hosea. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about Hosea chapter 11. Yeah, I mean, it is my pleasure. Hosea chapter 11 is one of the most beautiful chapters of God's passionate jealousy, his protection for Israel. You basically, in Hosea, read 10 chapters of judgment, and so you can pull out the reality that God has every right to utterly destroy the people of Israel. And he chooses not to? And he chooses not to, exactly. Instead, what you get is a very real, very raw, very honest reflection on God's love for his people. Yeah, yeah you, you get that. You get that it's very honest, but it's also very powerful, very power-filled. 
exactly. It can basically be broken down into three movements. The first, the impetus of God's love, or why God loves Israel. The tumult of God's love, or why that love is so frustrating. And finally, the passion for love. So let's start with the impetus of love. In essence, God says he loves Israel because it is within his nature to do so. You know, Austin, I was once asked, Wesley, why does God love me? And I said, well, I guess I don't really know, but I imagine it's a lot like why a bird sings. It's a part of its nature to do so. And here, God says that Israel was his son, and like a father, he reared Israel, he protected Israel, and, and, and as payment for his sacrifice, the son completely rejects the father. He packs his things, he goes off to a far country. And this is where it gets really interesting, and, and, really, and really beautiful. There's this sort of wrestle that begins to happen within the Godhead. God says, but though you rejected me, how can I give up on you? Though you rejected me, how can, I, how can I leave you? Though you rejected me, how can I despise you? You are my son, he says. It is in my nature to redeem. I cannot, I will not let you go. And this is really the, the release of all of that passion and tension that is built up over, over really the entire drama he compares himself to this lion that's going to that's going to roar, that's going to pounce, that's going to leap and and he roars and and it causes all of the people, all of the people of God to to turn back to him. Whoa. Yeah. It's really intense. I was I was listening to those old um, motivational videos on YouTube. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. It's like it's like you're being told precisely what is wrong with you, and so you expect this judgment. But what ends up happening is this beautiful, passionate drive to come and to get you, to come and to pull you up out of what is wrong with you, and 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 it's this this roar of love that reverberates throughout the entire universe so profoundly, so deeply, that it causes the people of God to come back to him. And, and the word that's used there, that people will come back trembling, I, I actually love that. And the Hebrew word is actually more layered than the English. It's, it's like this, this cautious, timid approach. It's like, it's like it will be an act so cosmically radical that it will cause people to, to rethink God's love for them. It will cause people to think, whoa. I didn't know that he could love me to that degree. Hmm. That actually moves us really quite nicely into the last little bit of this episode. So I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much, Wesley. You're a huge help, as always. Thanks so much. So when we land the plane in the book of Hosea, Hosea talks about what this cosmically radical event will cause people to do. It will cause people to repent. It will cause people to return, to turn away from what they're doing and towards the Lord because they will see the magnitude with which the Lord loves his creation. Presumably, since the entire biblical epic leads us to this conclusion, it will have something to do with how the snake crusher will redeem humanity. 
how the snake crusher will crush the head of the snake. Hosea ends with these words, Return, O Israel, to the Lord, for you have stumbled. And God responds with these words, I will heal their apostasy and I will love them freely. That's the book of Hosea. This is Bible Unbound, and we will see you next week.